are listening to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Corbin Barthold. As anyone who follows the issue knows by now, politicians at both the state and the federal level are just itching to tell social media services how to moderate content. It's sort of clever, really. Why tackle real-world problems, which is hard, when you can just blame those problems on what's said or blocked from being said on the big social media sites? There are a few problems, of course. For one thing, the two major political parties are pulling in opposite directions. Generally speaking, Republicans want more speech left up, while Democrats want more speech taken down. Much more importantly, though, there is that pesky old First Amendment which broadly ensures that the government can't tell websites what speech they must or must not uh, allow, repeat, spread, speak themselves, and so on. Slowly but surely, the powers that be are coming to understand that, whether they like it or not, it is unconstitutional for the government to employ a brute force, you must host this, you must not host that approach to regulating online speech. Unable to enforce their speech preferences directly, some politicians are reaching for a more subtle approach, though it's not much more subtle. What these politicians have hit on is the idea of using quote unquote transparency rules to burden, intimidate, browbeat, and harass social media sites into moderating content in the way the politicians want. If you're a bit cynical about it, you might even suspect that actually they've hit on transparency laws simply to punish sites they don't like and to give the appearance of doing something. At any rate, these transparency laws too violate the First Amendment. And I am so, so pleased about who is here as my guest today to explain why. Eric Goldman is an Associate Dean and Professor of Law at Santa Clara University School of Law where he co-directs the High Tech Law Institute. He writes the Technology and Marketing Law blog, which you should follow, as I do. He has written indispensable papers on the importance of Section 230, on the varieties of content moderation, and much more. But today we're going to focus on a forthcoming law review article of his called The Constitutionality of Mandating Editorial Transparency, to be published in the Hastings Law Journal later this year. Professor Goldman, welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here, and I really appreciate you giving a chance to uh, do a deeper dive on my paper. Well, uh, as we'll get into, this has been sort of the, uh, the ignored stepchild of the issues in the cases that are surrounding social media um, content moderation laws. So I think it's so important. And I hope uh, this gets cited in, in briefs even. I have high hopes. Uh, It'll be cited, high. but most only be but see. Oh yeah, there you go. Well, let's uh, start at the beginning. Um, as you mentioned to me, as, as we were discussing um, in advance of the episode, it's not actually the current laws that we see in Florida and Texas, which we've discussed on this show multiple times, that originally spurred you to write the paper. So what, what did spur you to write the paper? What got you interested in this issue? Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, this paper actually probably traces back most directly to 
the enforcement efforts that uh, then Attorney General Jim Hood undertook um, against Google uh, almost a decade ago. Um, and it, it, uh, Attorney General Hood demanded a lot of information from Google about how it was running its search operations. We now know because of the hack of Sony's corporate files uh, by North Korea, that actually Jim Hood was acting on behalf of the Motion Picture Association. Um, and so basically everything that he was asking for was being, uh, he was fronting uh, the request from the MPA. Um, and I remember looking at that and thinking, the, the requests themselves were invasive and sensorial that he was sending messages through the discovery requests that he made um, that Google couldn't help but get. Um, and so I've been constantly thinking about that and, and very unsatisfied about uh, the resolution of that case where basically the court's like, look, Hood didn't actually bring any enforcement action, so no big deal. Um, Google, uh, you know, tough it out. Um, and uh, uh, since I would say around um, uh, the, the development of the Santa Clara principles, which I'm not sure if you discussed on your show before or not. Um, not in my reign as host. Yeah, let me just say a few words about that. Um, we held a conference at Santa Clara University in 2018 uh, to focus on how companies were structuring their content moderation operations. And as an adjunct to that, an ancillary development, a group of uh, public um, uh, uh, interest groups, uh, you know, a group of public interest organizations and some academics got together and they articulated the Santa Clara principles, which were designed to be a benchmark for internet services to provide the kind of transparency and due process that they wanted. Um, the basic principles are numbers, notices, and appeals um, that they want uh, uh, companies to disclose uh, numbers. Uh, they want to, the companies to give notice to uh, users who uh, have uh, had their content um, uh, uh, subjected to some action, and they want to give those uh, users the right of appeal. Um, and I was part of the conversation developing those, but I ultimately didn't sign on to the principles. And it, and it kind of struck me like, you know, what are we doing here? On the one hand, more transparency is great. More disclosures are great. I love the idea of giving users notice and appeal, but I don't want to mandate that. I don't know that we want to say that is the right solution in all circumstances. Um, and then the last piece of the puzzle came when I was doing some meetings with staffers in 2019, back when I could do that in person in Washington, DC. Uh, and I would come in and they say, look, we hate section 230, that's not on the table for discussion. What do you got for me? And a lot of times in those discussions, the option as you pointed out was, well, since we can't tackle the issues underlying section 230 directly, what about transparency? And so I saw this increasing groundswell behind transparency as a regulatory solution um, that, uh, that I felt was under discussed. And I'm still thinking back to the Jim Hood situation, like, hey, wait a minute, you know, you mandate these transparencies, you're going to be unleashing, you know, 50 uh, Jim Hoods and maybe, you know, thousands of state, uh, of, of lower level uh, prosecutors um, uh, to, uh, to use these transparency options and to what end and what purpose. So that's where the paper came from really in 2019 when I realized that a lot of the conversation was shifting away from Section 230, good or bad, to transparency as a way to work around it. I'm like, I think this might be a dead end and I had to articulate why some of these issues just sort of float around and they they sort of 
go dormant for a while and then they reconstitute and then people often think they're discovering them for the first time. And, you know, one thing I said in the intro that's not entirely true is there's definitely diehards who still think that they're going to ram home, you know, a common carrier theory and get, you know, must carry uh, or get the uh, social media websites declared public forums that have to carry you know, all speech consistent with the First Amendment. So I should I should hang a lantern on that, that we're not like free and clear there. But when you say, oh, it's no big deal, the investigation hasn't been uh, put into an enforcement action in court. Oh, my goodness. Does that sound like the Twitter versus Paxton case we'll talk about in a minute? But let's try to keep a certain uh, order here and move into the big cases that everybody in this world currently has their eyes on, I mentioned that we have laws passed in Florida, and then a few months later in Texas, the Florida bill is SB 7072. The Texas bill is HB 20. Uh, each one got enjoined by a federal district judge, and each one is on appeal. One is in the 11th Circuit, uh, and then the Texas uh, appeal is in the 5th Circuit. Each decision um, sort of passes by the transparency provisions in the respective laws. They're not the center of attention. And so I think your paper is so important in really focusing on these issues and giving them the attention they deserve. Um, and two things you do in particular that I'd really like to hear you elaborate on are number one, you get into the case law that discusses uh, traditional publisher source data and how that gets treated when the government goes after it. Uh, and then the Fourth Circuit decision by Judge Wilkinson in Washington Post versus McManus. So two-part question there, but could you dive into both of those important topics? Uh, sure. Uh, so just to clarify, uh, so uh, the uh, Florida uh, law um, uh, court ruling uh, didn't talk about transparency at all. Uh, it just simply lumped it together with everything else. Um, and the, uh, the, the Texas law opinion actually did have a part on transparency. It basically said that the transparency obligations were, uh, were too onerous. Um, so that was, I think, the first time that we had seen a specific analysis from a, from a, from a court about uh, a, the kind of transparency laws that we see coming down the pike. Um, and of course, it, we hope that Florida and Texas laws will continue to be enjoined as they go through appeal. But we're about to have a whole slate of new laws coming onto the books in 2022. Uh, you know, state legislatures across uh, the country are working on, uh, on, on laws that are going to require transparency, um, including um, uh, both, uh, quote, red state and blue states. Uh, this is not a, uh, a single partisan issue, even though Texas and Florida are kind of on one end of the spectrum on, in terms of red states, um, we're gonna see blue states that are gonna enact transparency obligations as well. Um, so, you know, this is, I think, a core battle uh, ground. And I remember when the Texas and Florida laws uh, were passed, there was, I think, uh, a fair amount of consensus that some of the parts were clearly unconstitutional, the parts that told their services what they had to publish or couldn't publish. Um, and then there was, I think, a similar consensus that um, the transparency pieces were okay. You know, that the court was, you know, the courts were going to treat those as something different and find a reason to support them. 
which was very chilling to me because I thought, boy, we have to knock the whole thing out. We got to get rid of the, the outright censorship. We have to get rid of this backdoor censorship as well. Um, so the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, when I think about the legal issues underlying this, it reminds me actually of uh, something I don't talk about uh, directly in the paper, but uh, uh, might be familiar with this audience, the notion of general warrants. If you think about uh, the revolutionary uh, period, um, you know, the colonial period uh, uh, with uh, Britain, uh, the British um, uh, soldiers could just come into a, a person's house and start looking for evidence of a crime. Um, they, uh, they didn't have to have the kind of particularized search warrants that are, we now require. Um, and to me, that's a lot of what the transparency laws are about. They're about giving the opportunity to say, we as the government or we as private entities can come and look at the, the house of these internet services and then we'll find evidence of a crime um, uh, after we've had that opportunity. Um, and so really, when you think about the transparency laws, the question that, that, that started my paper was always, and how are these gonna be enforced? Who's doing the enforcing? What data will they have access to? And how will they misuse that access to the data? And it really shocked me how many smart people um, were so willing to embrace transparency without thinking about the end game. They were like, okay, transparency sounds good. Let's adopt it. Um, and then I want to ask them to move to step, think two steps ahead. Okay, so now who's enforcing this transparency law and what requests are they going to make? And is it going to look a lot like these general warrants? They're going to ask for everything um, and then they'll look for the cherry picked data that they can use to say, and here now we have uh, evidence of a possible crime. Um, so uh, there are a number of legal limits on this. Um, I point in the paper to a Supreme Court ruling from 1979 that has been widely forgotten um, that uh, basically uh, addressed um, the discovery request for um, actual malice in a defamation case. And the court said in that circumstance, it's fine uh, to, um, uh, to make the request, uh, discovery request of the editor's state of mind if they're gonna be invoking this actual malice defense because how do you determine actual malice without knowing what they were thinking? And then the court goes on and what, what is unambiguously dicta, but I think extremely relevant says, this isn't like a circumstance where a state's just forcing the disclosure of this editorial information um, as a general purpose disclosure, um, that would be clearly unconstitutional. And that's exactly what Florida and Texas laws seek to do, which is to, disclose uh, uh, information about editorial decisions on a general uh, uh, in case we need to know basis. Um, and the court was contemplating that that kind of thing would be clearly unconstitutional. So we have like a really good basis to start to question the legitimacy from the Supreme Court. And then you mentioned the Washington Post versus McManus case from uh, uh, 2019. In that case, the court, or the uh, Maryland required internet services to uh, make certain disclosures about political advertising that they accepted, and then to actually make the corpus of ads available to uh, for investigation by government regulators. Um, and the court said, hold on a sec, you can't do that. You're now requiring these publishers to disclose information about their editorial practices for the purpose of a government regular coming in and looking for problems. Um, and that disclosure requirement and the, even the requirement to, to maintain the archives was 
a violation of uh, the First Amendment because the court understood if you give the regulators that power, they will use that power inevitably to put pressure on the publishers about how they make their choices. And that's overly uh, engaged with editorial practices in a way that will cause censorship. Um, and so we have uh, several, I think, really persuasive cases that suggest that the kind of transparency that Florida, Texas, and these other states that are discussing today are all pursuing um, are exactly the kind of things that we know we really can't uh, impose on publishers. The process of legislating is somewhat iterative where Florida will jump out, they'll make a law, they're the first to do it. So naturally, they're likely to make some mistakes, some of them uh, quite unforced and ridiculous, like the notorious theme park exception in that law, carve out for Disney. But some of them just because if you're first, you work out the kinks. And as you said, other states are looking at these things and they're bound to learn and start to figure out as court decisions exist, what they can and cannot get away with or or you know what, what avenues are the most promising to pursue to get their law through court. <clears throat> so I wanna have that as a caveat because there's just a lot of incompetence in Florida and Texas. And I wanna picture for a moment a legislature that's maybe a bit more attuned and competent is gonna try and get past the issues of discriminating among different uh, websites and so forth. With that preliminary, uh, McManus, Judge Wilkinson in that case, he does a lot of very standard First Amendment analysis about things like content discrimination, discriminating among speakers, going to political speech and all that. He then goes, um, I mean, I don't want to put it this way, out on a limb a little bit. He, he extends the discussion to a point where he's not rock solid on case law, but he's making an important point. There's this crucial passage where he says that Maryland law's inspection requirement would, quote, bring the state into an unhealthy entanglement with news outlets. He said that the provision, quote, lacked any readily discernible limits on the ability of government to supervise the operations of the newsroom, and that with its foot now in the door, Maryland has offered no rationale for where these incursions might end. And I find that very powerful. And you, from your, your discussion of McManus, you clearly agree with that. But it is sort of a slippery slope argument. And I'm wondering if you get before a court that maybe is somewhat sympathetic to the way Texas and Florida try to depict the situation where, okay, a website uh, like um, Twitter or Facebook, they're not quite a publisher. I mean, we saw in the district court in Florida that the judge was kind of skeptical of treating them exactly like a newspaper. And then maybe you're falling back a bit on this, you know, government keep your nose out from, you know, camel's nose under the tent into these things. Um, the states can say it's limited, we're not doing too much, you know, we're not going to go further, we'll behave ourselves. Do you think they have any prospect of success in that regard? Do you think there are any limits to Judge Wilkinson's point? I mean, bottom line, can you see any kind of transparency law of this sort surviving? And that's why I wrote the paper as broadly as I did, because I didn't want to just tackle the Florida and Texas laws. As you mentioned, uh, legislatures will iterate, they'll keep playing around, we'll see uh, perhaps better drafted, less uh, you know, uh, obviously messaging oriented laws uh, on the books. Um, 
And it's my perspective, I don't think there's any room here uh, for legislatures to do it more smartly. And I really tried to get at that issue through this issue about source data disclosure, exactly what um, Wilkinson was talking about in the McManus case, this idea that if you're asking a publisher for a disclosure of everything that they saw in order to come and second guess whether or not they did it properly, um, that entire architecture lends itself to censorship. And I, it's my position that there's no real way to draft uh, a editorial transparency law without running into that, uh, that problem. Um, so, uh, so if we accept the idea that we don't really want regulators poking around at every single scrap of data that the internet services saw, both for censorship purposes, but also for privacy and maybe other concerns as well. If we don't want that to happen, that's the only logical consequence of a mandatory editorial transparency law. And that means those laws are categorically problematic. So I really wanted to, to write a paper that showed that I don't think this is just about clever legislative drafting. I think it's about rethinking the entire enterprise. Texas recently filed its brief in its appeal in the Fifth Circuit, and in it, it states that HB 20, and I'm quoting them, uh, it imposes sunlight on the platforms through multiple fine-tuned disclosure requirements, uh, which is one way to put what they require. But um, what they are trying to do in defending the bulk of their the transparency portions of their law is fit their law into what's known as the Zaudauer standard after a Supreme Court case, which permits states to require factual and uncontroversial disclosures that are not unduly burdensome. And they say that their rules in HB 20 are really no different than requiring a food label to have calorie content, or they cite this case, maybe we don't wanna get sucked into from Berkeley about radiation levels with phones, uh, or you know, listing a country's product of origin. Um, in this argument, it seems they run smack into your paper. So could you walk us through where you think they go wrong? Yeah, I think there's two, independent problems, honestly, uh, that we need to tackle. Um, and so uh, let's deal with them uh, seriatim. So uh, the, the, the first uh, issue is trying to analogize to like the Zaruder case um, really kind of misunderstands the nature of the disclosures. In a case where you've got a discovery request in a specific litigation that's supervised by a judge, and generally you're gonna to have to have some kind of rule 11 basis for the making the claim in the first instance, um, that's a qualitatively different legal posture than um, saying, we want you to disclose everything prophylactically, um, and then we'll decide if any of that is relevant. And so that, that flipping the, the standards for disclosure from these narrow uh, targeted discovery requests to you got to tell us everything without any discovery requests and without any judicial supervision of the relevancy or appropriateness of that request, I think totally changes the nature of it. Um, and that's why I, I find that the laws that require these upfront disclosures um, really are problematic at the at the inception. They're, they're architect on a premise that I don't think is defendable. 
Um, the other is this analogy to this is just a disclosure law. There are other mandatory disclosure laws that have survived constitutional scrutiny. Um, look at the food labeling laws. Those aren't, aren't uh, constitutionally problematic. Why is this thing different? And I do talk about that in the paper. And I think it's a really critical point because I hear that argument all the time. And when you require a food labeling uh, disclosure, um, any uh, uh, changes to the product that are uh, uh, caused by that food labeling law um, don't impact constitutionally protected rights. Um, so if you decide to reduce the amount of sugar that you add because you don't want to make an ugly disclosure, or if you try to come up with a less fatty product in order to make a less ugly disclosure, those changes to the sugar or fat content have no constitutional implications whatsoever. Those are not protected uh, uh, decisions under the Constitution. Um, and the enforcement of those laws doesn't require the disclosure of any constitutionally protected material. So you're gonna go and you're gonna take the food to a lab to run an evaluation. Did it have the, the fat or uh, sugar calorie uh, uh, content that the label claims? Um, that kind of discovery doesn't raise any constitutional concerns either. In contrast, when it's a quote speech product, as opposed to other kinds of products in the marketplace like food, um, the disclosures absolutely change the nature of the product. Then you might actually, as a publisher, decide, I don't want to make this disclosure because I fear like it's going to cause me problems with the regulators. That's a sensorial impact. And then when the regulators come in to say, you disclosed that you made these choices, I think that those disclosures are inc incorrect or incomplete. Then in order to do that, we get into that source data disclosure problem. Now I got to see everything that the publisher saw. And that's also sensorial. Um, so that analogy is really, I think, I think it's intellectually lazy, uh, to be honest. I think that England's making that is 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 trying to dance around the fact that that food and speech are two entirely different products in the marketplace. And to equate the two misses the reason why we regulate one, uh, I'm sorry, we constitutionally protect one more highly than the other. Okay, uh, putting my devil's advocate hat on on behalf of Texas here, but what about the um, the complaint and appeal process in HB 20's law? So uh, really, aren't you just being um, a bit fastidious if you're a website and you claim that having to do um, appeals, having to let people complain when they feel mistreated is somehow an effect on your speech rather than a matter of just consumer protection. Um, you know, Texas argues that in contrast to the straight disclosure requirements, a uh, complaint and appeal process is really just a minimum standard of um, how you treat clients. So they say, quote, it's standard fair economic regulation. So why can't they distinguish that aspect on that ground? And just to clarify, my paper doesn't actually talk about the appeals, right? Um, that is not a transparency obligation. That's more what I call digital due process. Um, it's basically saying, we're going to take the same rules that, that due process requires from the government, and we're going to apply them to um, uh, private entities and say, you have to act like the government in terms of providing due process to your constituents, in this case, your uh, customers. Um, and 
I think that the idea of imposing digital due process on private entities is a corrupt one. Uh, it's one that I, I think misapprehends why we impose due process on government entities in the first instance, but I don't try to tackle that directly in uh, the paper. The notices part saying that uh, uh, a um, service has to disclose um, the basis on which it decided to take action, which is required in both the federal, uh, I'm sorry, both the Florida and uh, Texas laws, that is squarely within my paper. And it gets back to the same set of problems, that disclosure is being mandated without knowing that there's any legal violation at all. In fact, there may be no legal violation for the service having took the action that it did. Um, and the disclosure now puts in, in, in place a set of mechanisms that include things like now the, the plaintiff gets access to uh, discovery where it's gonna be given access to materials that might very well put the state in an unhealthy entanglement with the publisher by second guessing the publisher's decision saying, you said you were doing it because of this reason. We just don't agree. We see it differently. You should have made a different decision. Um, and that kind of engagement between a, a coercive state and a publisher is the kind of thing that changes publishers, uh, causes publishers to change their decisions. Um, so absolutely, I think those individualized notices are problematic because of the, the fact, how are they going to actually be enforced? That enforcement mechanism leads to all the same problems I've been discussing so far. One other thing is that there's also unquestionably a financial burden associated with that. Um, and one that becomes obvious when you think about the billions of potential disclosures that might be required each day. Um, and the worst part is just thinking in terms of the real politic, not necessarily what the constitution requires, those costs that are borne through the notice um, most of them are going to be invested to tell spammers that they aren't allowed uh, to do what they're doing. Um, and that's not socially beneficial at all to tell the spammers to stop spamming. They already know they're not uh, supposed to be spamming. They don't need notice to do that. All they're going to do is they're going to weaponize those notices to sue the services saying, you didn't um, make an accurate disclosure. Mine wasn't really spam. I'm going to tie you up and impose costs on you. So the cost implication of this might be recognizable in the constitution, but even if they aren't, it's just a terrible idea. Well, we'll see what happens in that Fifth Circuit appeal. I think there is a real concern as I've, I've looked at Texas's brief and their amici that, um, you know, they're focusing on things like common carriage and, and equitable estoppel. And, and I do worry that the transparency issue will sort of get lost in the shuffle and that there will be a strong temptation among judges who, who are just coming to this case fresh to see, oh, we'll, we'll split the baby in some way and, and let the transparency stuff through. So I'm so glad that your paper is out there to um, explain why that's a terrible idea. But some and, of- and, and if I can just jump in on that, I just want to reinforce, that's one of the reasons why the Texas opinion was so strong because it didn't try to split the baby. It didn't mm -hmm. try to find some kind of basis to say that this is, uh, you know, uh, if I squint, I can see why this is less worse than the other pieces. And it expressly addressed the transparency piece and said, I'm expressly ruling on that part. I'm not just treating it as one broad brush. Um, so the Texas opinion is a really strong one. I think one of the strongest First Amendment opinions we've gotten in several years. Um, and so it's a great opinion uh, to lay a foundation for the Fifth Circuit to come out to the right ruling. But we also know the First Circuit has been doing some really wacky things recently. And so um, I'm nervous, too. Well, uh, as we leave the HB 20 topic, I will also mention maybe one day it's uh, email 
must carry requirement will get enforced and challenged? I do want to reinforce this way, because this is something that I think is super interesting. So there was a part of the Texas law that was not challenged, uh, the requirement that uh, email service providers give notice every time they block an incoming email and an opportunity to appeal. Um, and as far as I know, no email service provider has complied with that law, and it wasn't challenged. So as you point out, it's waiting for a, a challenge once enforced, um, but it's not proactively been uh, enjoined. That's still a good law on the books today. That it the blows Texas my mind that that is just sitting around uh, like a loaded gun, to quote Justice Jackson. We'll see. I, I think that's a great analogy. That is a loaded gun. That's a great room opportunity for the Texas Attorney General to cause a ton of mischief. And yet, um, to the extent that the bill was always meant as a messaging bill, it was always meant to uh, throw some red meat in front of the MAGA crowd, not actually to make a policy, it's quite possible that it will never be enforced because nobody really cared about it in the first instance. It was only meant for the, for show. Well, so you mentioned consumer protection stuff in one of your uh, recent answers, and then we mentioned the Texas Attorney General. So it's a perfect segue to finally get to uh, Twitter versus Paxton. Um, Ken Paxton, the Texas Attorney General, we've, we've mentioned it in passing on past episodes. I actually wrote an article recently in uh, in the Bulwark about him. He is a remarkable character, would be a euphemistic way to put it, with uh, quite a quite a history. He his rap sheet, he, although he hasn't actually, um, he's managed to to escape the clutches of the law. So the allegations against him, shall we say, um, are not the kind of things you'd want to see in your chief law enforcement officer of a state, but uh, that's enough about him. Um, He launched a quote unquote consumer protection investigation uh, into Twitter right after Twitter booted Trump from its services for his tweets during Trump's tweets during the January 6th riot. And we discussed this on the last episode of the podcast that the Ninth Circuit upheld the dismissal of a challenge brought by Twitter to the investigation, holding that the dispute was not yet ripe, going to what you said uh, at the outset of the show of the, oh, well, you know, you've you've just submitted document demands, but you haven't gone to court to enforce it. So, you know, no harm, no foul, no intimidation there. Um, With you today, I'd like to home in on a really remarkable passage in the opinion Um, So again, as discussed on the last show, the core problem with the opinion is that it glosses over Twitter's argument that the investigation is retaliatory for how the service treated Trump specifically. And the opinion conflates that Trump issue with Texas's claim that Twitter discriminates against conservative, quote unquote, speech in general. And if you want to circle back and talk about the problems with that, you're, you're more than welcome to. But what I first want to put to you uh, is this passage in the opinion that I think is just so wild where uh, the court kind of goes out of its way to basically belittle Twitter's First Amendment right to uh, editorial discretion and control. So I'm just going to read the passage because I find this baffling. It says, quote, Twitter argues that Texas's investigation is illegitimate because matters of editorial judgment can never be investigated. In doing so, it analogizes its statements about content moderation, that it moderates content without considering viewpoint, to be slogans like all the news that's fit to print and fair and balanced. Twitter and Amiki also rely on cases highlighting the dangers in government editorial oversight. 
uh, unquote. Then there's this uh, a site to Miami Herald versus Tornillo, remarkably as if it just highlights the dangers instead of like saying it's not allowed. Um, we reject these arguments, the court writes. And it says, quote, Miami Herald addressed government regulations or statutes which themselves required balance. Here, by contrast, Twitter has made statements about balance. And so the danger from Miami Herald is absent. Twitter's statements can be investigated as misleading, just like the statements of any other business. Now, there's kind of a lot to unpack there. I apologize. I'll set the table by saying Miami Herald is this key case we discuss on the podcast all the time, saying that a newspaper cannot be forced to print material against its will. It has the right of editorial judgment as to what does and does not go in the paper. Um, but I don't really have a, a precise question. It really is just what the heck is going on in that passage? Yeah, um, the Twitter versus Paxton case, I think, uh, is a really great case study of the risks of allowing enforcement efforts to um, uh, mandate editorial disclosure. Um, and so I treat it as a case study in the article and I say, like, isn't this horrifying? Um, and what's most horrifying to me is that when I present this uh, uh, case to audiences, usually the answer is, oh, well, the courts will fix that, won't they? And at every step along the way, Twitter is just getting shut down. The courts are literally not fixing it. And so it's this travesty of justice, really. Um, what the court is doing in the Twitter versus Paxson case is, is prioritizing the needs of, of an attorney general's office to do investigations um, over the risks that those investigations might have First Amendment implications. Um, and uh, the court has a point. The point is uh, that uh, um, there's no way to know the legitimacy of the, enforce, uh, of the investigation until we see what the investigation reveals. So the court's saying you can't uh, uh, litigate over the legitimacy of the enforcement because we, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the legitimacy of the investigation because we don't even know what the investigation will produce. Um, I get that. And yet in a case like this, where Paxton has made it clear that the reason he's launched this investigation is retaliatory um, over uh, Twitter's decision to uh, shut down Trump's account. Um, I would think that the, the lack of good faith or the flat out bad faith on the part of Paxton would factor into the court's opinion some and say, okay, we understand that typically we can't uh, litigate over the merits of an investigation until we see what the investigation produces. But when it's clearly retaliatory, maybe we ought to rethink that. And especially the fact that Twitter now has this hanging disclosure obligation. This, uh, the demand that Paxton made is, uh, is continuing in nature, which means it's still a requirement for Twitter to comply with it um, uh, today. Uh, and unless it's withdrawn or unless there's actual enforcement action, it just stays there as a permanent obligation. And the court keeps saying, there's no way to shut that obligation down. So what it's really begging Twitter to do is to give the, the finger to Paxton and say, F you, I'm not gonna comply with this. Now take me to court. And it seems like that burden on Twitter to disregard an investigatory demand, give the finger to the investigator and say, take me to court and then we'll decide if your investigation is legitimate. Um, it's, it's, it's self-sensorial. 
it's the kind of thing where most uh, publishers are going to say, I don't want to face that risk. I don't want to have to go justify the illegitimacy of the investigatory demand to a court with whatever sanctions might apply to me for having disregarded the obligation in the first place. So the, the court just disregards the fact that the, the Paxton just has this unending microscope pointed at Twitter and Twitter can't shut it off under any circumstance. The only thing it can do is just ignore it and pray. And to me, that can't be the right result. There's almost a, and I'm not saying Texas is is akin to the Soviet Union, but there is a, a Soviet feel of everybody is violating the law until proven otherwise, rather than we live in a uh, free society where you're innocent until we prove you're violating the law. The fact that we just, this is sitting over your head and a year from now, you know, the attorney general's office can write you and say, hey, remember, we can enforce this against you unless you X. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it blows- and I'm sorry, just to remind you, that is kind of like, again, the general warrant kind of thing. Like, give us everything and then we'll let you know if we find a legal violation. And so the idea that you can't push back on that general warrant and say, hold on, you don't get to know everything. There's a bunch of things that you have to satisfy a constitutional burden before you have the right to know it. Um, and the court's like, no, um, don't disclose it. And good luck in, in the next court proceeding. And one thing I found so surprising, so Paxton, I think it was a month after starting the investigation, he was giving an interview and he says, flat out, he goes, Uh, Yeah, in my office, we're investigating the whole issue of the deplatforming of the president, which to me, to use another gun analogy, uh, is the smoking gun of uh, the retaliatory intent. And that does not figure at all in the Ninth Circuit's opinion. It's just not there. Um, So you and I have made our feelings known about the the direct holding, but I do want to circle back to not only did they make this ruling on uh, ripeness, it's called prudential ripeness. It's not, it, I'm not going to dive into the details of how they didn't even make a square Article 3 holding. They, they, they decided basically as a matter of prudence based on this really shaky legal doctrine that like has had a bunch of holes kicked in it that just as, as a matter of their own judgment, it's not ripe to hear yet. That was their core holding. Uh, and that's bad enough, but they could have kind of just gone home there. They go out of their way to basically undermine a lot of what we've been talking about through this whole episode, because a lot of what we're talking about stands on the premise that this is speech. These are speakers. These are publishers. They uh, have, uh, you know, the fact that you would chill their speech is a problem. Uh, and the Ninth Circuit kind of went out of its way to, to poo-poo that in this passage. Um, I mean, do you have any thoughts on it? Uh, yeah, I agree uh, with everything you said. And I uh, just one more thing that I want to point out, um, that the court uh, noted the idea that it wasn't uh, critiquing um, uh, you know, some statement like all the news that's fit to print or the daily diary of the uh, American dream or all these general puffery style slogans, but it was uh, uh, pointing at uh, specific statements that Twitter made. Um, and to me, that's that's completely disingenuous. Um, you know, if Twitter says, hey, you know, we generally treat uh, uh, Republicans and Democrats about the same, um, which, as we know, is actually not true, that they actually the Twitter platform amplifies conservative uh, voices more than it um, uh, amplifies uh, liberal voices. Um, but if they say something like that, 
that's still like in the puffery category in my mind, um, you know, that uh, uh, that it's not really a claim of absolute fidelity. It's, you know, trying to explain how the service works and in a way that uh, is understandable. Um, so the fact that the court implies that there's something more rigorous about Twitter statements than these obvious puffery statements um, really gives that much more ammo to the attorney generals to weaponize um, and say, okay, I can go and find any quote by any executive over the course of the entire life of the service, and I can use that as the basis to make this uh, this this uh, pretextual claim um, that there's a violation. Um, I, I, I mean, any court that cared about the First Amendment would have said, you know, we need something more rigorous than that. Uh, now, of course, as you point out, they would have said, we we know that in fact everything they're claiming is pretextual because they're really doing it for retaliatory purposes. We have good evidence of that that's not controverted. Um, and uh, but even if that weren't true, uh, this idea that um, uh, what Twitter said was more problematic than, uh, you know, the, the New York Times slogan, all the news that's fit to print. If all the news that fit to print is the basis of an investigation, um, because it might not be true, um, that really I, I don't see how anyone could, could not see the obvious sensorial consequence of that. Um, you literally have to have a debate with the government regulator. Is that news fit to print or not? That's the kind of thing we know that um, uh, Miami Herald um, versus Tornillo foreclosed. Sometimes I'm not the originator of this idea, but I, I do think it would be amusing to have the content moderation equivalent of the purge, you know, the film where no laws apply for 24 hours. Having these rulings or these desires imposed for a day, you know, a day without Section 230 or a day where your rules are treated like this, where you get scrutinized um, and let everybody see what happens where the websites, the services go, okay, so clearly what we need to do is not tell you anything about how we moderate content, just do it in a black box be really over, uh, you know, over active in not letting people say anything controversial on our on our services. Um, it would be interesting to see everybody sort of get what they want good and hard. I think it was President Grant who said that's how you you really show a law is abhorrent is um, rigorous enforcement. Anyway, I digress. Uh, it's such a great paper, Professor, and I, I really encourage anyone interested in these issues to check it out. It is um, really on topic on things that are going on and also prescient about things that are coming up. And as you mentioned, and I'm sorry I didn't mention at the outset, you know, you cover Twitter versus Paxton, and that's an ongoing issue. Um, in closing, I'm, I, I have kind of a 10,000-foot question for you. So um, the First Amendment is sort of a fascinating area of jurisprudence all unto itself. And I, you know, First Amendment, I, the free speech clause in particular, I'm talking about at the moment, let alone the First Amendment writ large. Um, at one point in your paper, you discuss how it's a, it's a vast field and there are several doctrines that apply and those doctrines can overlap in a different case, uh, in a given case. And there's a certain amount of fuzziness as to what the sort of, uh, I'll call it like the order of operations is of which doctrine is primary and how you apply them. It's clear that Florida's and Texas laws violate the free speech clause, uh, to my mind. Uh, but you can go different routes. And we've already seen people kind of go different routes in both court decisions and papers. Uh, 
as I lay out all those doctrines for you, you know, a right to editorial discretion, which we might call the holding in Miami Herald, um, the issue of compelled speech, a focus on content or viewpoint or speaker discrimination, which there's a robust case law on. Um, Judge Wilkinson's passage on unhealthy entanglement. There's many routes to finding that a, a law like HP 20 or SB 7072 violates the First Amendment, but it, it all gets a little jumbled if you don't keep it straight. So with that kind of long windup, how do you view the way these doctrines interplay as you see the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit rule on these and I don't know, Twitter versus Paxton go to court in Texas or, or all these cases going forward? Is there a specific way you want to see these doctrines applied? Is there a specific hierarchy that you have for them in your mind? Or are you kind of just happy to like, just get these things struck down by any means necessary? <laughs> well, yes, I'm happy to see sensorial law struck down. Uh, you know, that, that part's all good. Um, but it does matter how, uh, you know, the, the, the means also matter, not just the ends. Um, and in my paper, I make it clear that I basically am throwing up my hands on the compelled speech doctrine, which seems like the most natural approach in these circumstances. If you're mandating disclosures, um, then that's a form of compelling the speakers to speak that they didn't when they didn't want to. That seems like the kind of thing where the compelled speech doctrine ought to apply. Um, but boy, that doctrine just vexes me. Um, and I, I couldn't come up with a good way of, of articulating why this was going to be the clear route to success. So I am nervous about relying on the compelled speech doctrine just because it's just a mess um, in ways that I think might ultimately lead courts to reach the wrong conclusion. Um, so that's why I've been focusing on these source data disclosures and about the sensorial implications of asking those questions and then second guessing the editorial decision making process. And to me, that's an editorial discretion category like you, you outlined in your taxonomy, um, that there's no, no way for that interaction of, of disclosing the source data and then uh, second guessing uh, how it was uh, processed. Um, uh, not to lead to the, the initial publisher second guessing itself in order to look better when those questions come up later from the uh, regulators. Um, and to me, then, I think that's the cleanest way to reach uh, the strict scrutiny standard as opposed to some kind of lower level standard and to say, yeah, we just we're not going to allow that. That's, you know, the government's going to have a really good reason for doing that. They're going to have to show that it was really tightly uh, uh, tailored to the um, uh, to the problem. And they're never going to be able to do that. So um, so I really think that emphasizing this enforcement piece um, which compelled speech doesn't really do, but but uh, but the editorial discretion piece really does. Um, and getting people to think beyond, wouldn't it be great if we had all these honest uh, answers from um, internet services and thinking, wow, think about all the ways in which the discovery process will be weaponized and all the uh, ways in which uh, publishers are going to now change their decisions based on, uh, based on uh, the questions that they get. That's where the real rubber meets the road. That's the piece I think we have to fight against. That's a piece I think everyone gets when you look at it in the offline publisher world and says, absolutely, that's not okay. Um, and so we can't allow the, our, our uh, internet exceptionalism viewpoints on this uh, piece to say, well, but but uh, the uh, internet services are publishing content a different way. Um, so that's where I hope we end up ending. Uh, I hope we end up landing in the analysis. 
Fantastic. Yeah, I, I have great sympathy for that. I think any um, person with my experience of being the associate at the law firm going through the 120 requests for production at uh, 11 p.m., you know, you, you start to understand the costs of data collection. Uh, but I and not just the costs, although those are critical. It's also the second guessing. The fact that knowing mm -hmm. that someone's going to be saying, I disagree with whether or not this properly triggered your own editorial standards, that second guessing absolutely has the, the classic chilling effect of causing the decisions to be made differently that we have to protect. Well, and, and one simple rule of discovery, if I send you a hundred requests for production and you are generally very compliant and do a very good job of producing stuff to me, but you make a reasonable, you know, I'm not going to produce this limited set of things. Of course, I, as a lawyer, now know that that's where the real dirt is. You're hiding it from me. That's where the skeletons in the closet are. I'm going to go to court and tell you, know, there, there's no good faith. Well, that's an overstatement, but discovery is generally a slightly bad faith endeavor uh, when a lot of money and is at stake and there are passions. And this is kind of taking that and, and putting it into, into law. Um, it's all just very pernicious. And you've explained and, why very well. And just a reminder, at least discovery is supervised by a judge who can uh, come in and intervene in egregious circumstances. Obviously, uh, parties try to avoid having uh, discoveries disputes go to a judge, but at least there's a mechanism. But the mandatory transparency laws, by definition, are done without that judicial supervision in the first instance. And so mm -hmm. in that they're they're actually that much more pernicious because of the fact that you don't even get to object and say not relevant or get to object and say that's privilege. Um, those objections all get overridden by the statute. Well, uh, Eric, thank you so much for your time. You are, uh, it's fair to use the word here, you are prolific. Um, I am always excited to see what is new with you and what you're uh, producing or working on. So please, as we head out the door, is there anything on the horizon that you would like to uh, preview for our listeners that we should look out for? <laughs> well, we should be fighting for uh, the soul of the internet today. Um, Texas and Florida really struck a stake at the heart of um, the internet um, by trying to gut it in fundamental ways. Um, but you know, uh, that's, we're, we're in the fight of the internet's life today. So um, I appreciate the work that Tech Freedom does on that front. It's always an honor to be uh, shoulder to shoulder uh, trying to save the internet from uh, people who really uh, have no good intent towards it. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think your listeners normally need this, but I encourage them to evangelize to their friends, start with the premise that when the government's passing one of these laws, they're not doing it because they really want to help us as consumers, um, and to actually make the internet better. There's always another agenda, um, underlying these, uh, actions that we need to be fighting against. And so, um, it's a really fraught time for the internet. Um, and I hope I can do my piece to try and protect it. I know Tech Freedom is doing the same and I hope the listeners will do so as well. Well, that's very kind of you. And I will shamelessly use that as an opportunity to plug our immediately previous episode, The State of Internet Freedom uh, with our free speech counsel, Ari Cohn and uh, our digital head, Rachel Altman and myself. Um, Thank you one more time. And uh, I am Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Counsel at Tech Freedom. This has been so much fun and so informative. Uh, 
I am trying to get back into the habit of encouraging listeners, if you enjoy this show, to give it that five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us out and boosts us a bit. And while you do that, I will go and start working on the next episode. Till next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.